Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's Insight Assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Hello, this is Good One, a podcast about jokes. I'm your host, Fulcher Senior Editor, Jesse David Fox. Each episode, I have a comedian come on to play a clip of one of their bits and discuss how they wrote it and how it fits to what they're trying to do with their comedy. This week, our guest is Taylor Tomlinson, a rising comedian who just released her first Netflix hour special, Quarter Life Crisis, at an age so young, it must be uttered in hushed tones. 26! Sorry, sorry, 26. It really is incredibly rare for a comedian to get to this level so young. As a result, we tend to know the names of Wunderkinds, be it Pete Davidson, Bo Burnham, Eddie Murphy. So, how did Taylor get here? Growing up super religious in California, the eldest of four daughters, Taylor started in comedy while in high school, when her father had the idea of taking a stand-up class together at a local church. She jokes that he probably thought she'd be able to write material for him. However, it was Taylor who had a knack for being on stage. She was so good, she was soon touring the Christian comedy circuit, which is a real thing, where she had to perform an act so clean it would make Ned Flanders look like Bart Franken-Simpson. Again, at this point, she is still in high school. She started college, but dropped out fairly quickly as she was starting to get work performing at colleges. Just when she thought she was out of churches, they pulled her back in. At 21, she was a finalist on NBC's Last Comic Standing, where the show's producer, somewhat against her will, positioned her as a church comedian. This resulted in a new slew of church gigs until she couldn't take it anymore. She became a regular old touring secular club comedian, headlining major clubs and soon playing theaters in some markets. On 2017, she performed on Conan for the first time, becoming one of the comedians Conan has since fully embraced, having her join him on live dates. In 2018, she chose to do a 15-minute set on Netflix's comedy lineup instead of a Comedy Central half hour. It went so well that when Taylor sent Netflix a tape trying to get a 30-minute special on the streamer, they offered her a full hour. I can see why. There, there's an undeniable quality to Taylor who tells jokes with clear, hard punchlines. The joke we talk about from her Netflix hour showcases her journey and growth as she tells the story of finally trying to lose her virginity. I say trying as she does not succeed. Now, here is Taylor Tomlinson. 
First time I tried to lose my virginity, I missed. That happened to anybody else in here? Not physically, I wasn't stupid. It wasn't like, oh, I was like trying to put a straw on a Capri Sun. It wasn't like that. <laughs> what happened was, I was waiting until marriage or until Jesus came back, because I'm like, my dad will like him, right? And <laughs> I waited, 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 and then finally, I tried to lose it to my boyfriend in college who said, no thank you, uh, which was a bit of a curveball. Nobody, nobody told me to expect sexual rejection as a woman. Nobody prepares you. From the time you start walking as a little girl, they're like, hey, everybody wants in there. You gotta build a perimeter and keep everyone out. I was so busy trying to keep people out of me, I never thought I'd have to talk someone into me. <laughs> Men take sexual rejection much easier because they're prepared for it. From the time they start walking, they're like, hey, Brent, you're a little creepy. Maybe keep an eye on that. <laughs> you're gonna need to get consent, which is a noise she makes, not a feeling you feel. But because men are prepared for it, they bounce back real quick. They walk around like vacuum salesmen, just like, eh, eh, there's another house over here. <laughs> My boyfriend was nervous to have sex with a virgin, and I was like, well, the good news is, you only have to do it once, and then guess what? Problem solved. <laughs> I felt like a high schooler trying to get a job at the Gap. Just like, oh, well, we really want someone with retail experience. It's like, well, how am I supposed to get some unless someone takes a chance on me? <laughs> I was literally told by somebody that getting rid of my virginity as a woman was gonna be like handing out free samples at a Costco. And instead, I felt like one of those guys on the Vegas Strip trying to hand you a nightclub flyer. It's like, no, come on in, it'll be fun. There's lights, it's kinda damp, get in here. Ah, ah, it's fun. But you know what they say, women always go for men like their fathers, so I keep going for guys who do not wanna sleep with me. Like that is so like my dad, all right? No reason to be offended. That joke's about what a great dad my dad is. <laughs> I lost my virginity late. I lost it when I was financially independent. Yeah, I went through my bank statements. Like, I could afford to have a dick in me. Just like, so responsible. <laughs> All my other friends lost it under a Backstreet Boys poster in their mom's house. And I lost it under an Ikea painting that I purchased <laughs> with a coupon. But I'm glad I was raised that way because it taught me how to choose sexual partners in a very responsible way, okay? Because when I was younger and I was waiting, I would tell guys, I'm not ready to have sex yet. Is that okay? And anytime guys were really cool about that decision, that just made me want to have sex with them more because there is nothing hotter than someone respecting your boundaries. You're just like, what? Take your pants off. Get over here. It's <laughs> The hottest thing you can say to a girl is, hey, we don't have to do anything. <sighs> now we do. <laughs> so I still do this as a sexually active adult. I pretend I'm not ready to have sex with someone new yet, just to make sure they're a good person first. I call it the gobstopper test. I go, oh, I'm not ready, is that okay? He's like, totally fine, no worries at all. And I'm like, Charlie! You won! 
Chocolate Factory. It's all for you! I am here with Taylor Tomlinson. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Big fan. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. Uh, <laughs> feelings Mutual, the special is very good. Thank you. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, so before we get to the joke that is the, the subject of the episode, um, so this special comes out around 10 years into you doing stand-up. Uh, the joke we're going to talk about is is not one you could have told for a variety of reasons when you started. So I wanted to set up with your journey about how you're able to get to the point where you're going to tell this joke. So at age 16, you took a stand-up comedy class with your dad, and it was taught by a Christian comedian. Mm-hmm. From there, you became a touring Christian comedian. The, re- the result is for years, in particular your formative years, your relationship to stand-up was intertwined with your relationship with your father and the church. Uh, I want to talk to you about the steps and the jokes that allowed you to sort of detangle that a bit. Oh gosh, yeah. Um, what a great question. The question even so let's let's <laughs> like, well, it hasn't even ask the question yet. yet. So um, so early on, can you think of a, a joke or jokes that that you told that that eventually that that church bookers pushed back on? Yes, I remember the joke that made me quit doing churches. Uh, so I was performing in clubs and occasionally churches as well um up until i was like 22 mm-hmm. so like four years ago now and uh, which is fairly recently and then once i got to that point i was i was kind of trying to phase out of it i had done last comic standing like right after i turned 21 and they had really wanted to present this narrative of like look you're a church comedian mm-hmm. that's crazy the only one on the show and i was like i perform at more colleges yeah, than yeah. i do in churches and i don't really want to be considered a church comedian and they were like Totally, totally. We'll never do that. And then, of course, that's what goes on reality television <laughs> sure. because that's the most interesting angle because they hadn't had that before. Um, but when I was when I was 22, I I had been opening for a very big church comedian. His road manager called me and was like, "Hey, so you tweeted something and." It's funny. It's just like we we have kids in our audience and, you know, we all think you're great, but it's just it's a different thing. And we just need to be careful and, you know, protect our guy and all that. And I was like, yeah, I totally understand. And uh, of course, felt shame in that I've never been fired from anything. Mm-hmm. So as like a good kid, you're yeah. like, oh, my God. But as soon as that happened, the joke ended up on my first late night set on Conan a few years ago, which was, uh, I'm a wild animal in bed, way more afraid of you than you are of me. And that was enough to get me fired Mm -hmm. from, you know, a string of church dates. And I just remember thinking, I don't ever want to feel this way again. I don't ever want to feel like I'm walking on eggshells or like I've disappointed somebody or like I lied to somebody Mm -hmm. or, or misled them. Not even that they made me feel that way when they let me go or took me off those tour dates. It was just some internal stuff, probably from growing up so religious. And I mean, even now, if I do a show where some of my jokes are too off color or dirty or whatever for maybe an audience that's a little older or a little more conservative, depending on where I'm at in the country, it really taps into that for Mm -hmm. me. And I still feel that like dormant guilt and shame (laughs) (laughs) a little bit. Um, And then I just get upset that I still feel that way. So that was a huge turning point for me. And that was the point that I, I told, you know, my 
managers and agents like, hey, I know you're going to get offers for me to do churches. I know it's good money. Just don't send them to me. I don't care how much it is. Like, just don't send them to me. I can't do it. Uh, I'm not what they want. Because if you do churches, you got to be that all the time. Yeah. You have to be squeaky clean in clubs. In like, if you're going to do both, you have to, you have be, to be squeaky that. clean in your private life. You do. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have. I know people who. Uh, perform in churches that are like, oh, we can't post pictures of us drinking. Like you mm-hmm. get, you have to be so, so careful. And like that with like worrying about getting canceled now, it's like, <laughs> yeah. how many ways can you lose your career? <laughs> Honestly. So then, so you, you mentioned the, the 2017, the first Conan set. Mm-hmm. Um, you talk about your dad a little bit in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk about the reaction he had to certain jokes? Um, you know, I I ran it by him before I did the set and he was like, "Yep, I that that's how I feel about things. I'm I'm good with it." And then uh the specifically the the gay marriage. The gay marriage, yes. Um cuz my parents are are more conservative and uh I had a joke about his beliefs on that. And uh after it came out, he was he was very proud for a couple of days and then he, it upset him, mm-hmm. um, which I, I can understand. Um, it is different, like seeing something on TV, I suppose. Um, and I have a lot of jokes about him in the new special, um, that I also ran past him before I filmed it. And I tried to be really careful in the special about cushioning those jokes with like, my dad's great yeah. and I love him and he made me who I am because I think everybody has those stories about their parents that everyone goes, ooh, yikes, or like things they said to you or beliefs they have that you don't agree with or aren't, you know, quite up to speed with mm-hmm. today's wokeness. And sure. and it doesn't mean that you're like, my parents are bad people. You're just poking fun at it. It's tough because I, I do try to be careful with that kind of stuff i'm more careful now than maybe i i used to be um but i also feel like i feel like it really depends on what it is like for example there was a joke that i had in my hour uh about my grandma that i ran past her before i filmed the special she thought it was funny and then a few days later she was like actually could you not and i was like it's gone yeah cut totally Um, it's not worth it um but that was like a personal story about herself that she told me that i was making a joke about Whereas everything that I say about my parents, it was it's things that they said to me or things that directly affected me or I'm saying something positive about them mm-hmm. usually. Um, and then so what about jokes that, that they don't approve of that aren't about you in your 2018, the comedy lineup 15 minutes you did? Um, I believe you said your parents stopped talking to you for a week or they didn't talk to you for a week. It's just they went real quiet for about a week because they had come to New York to see me on The Tonight Show the week before that came out. And that was like, you know, The Tonight Show is super clean. It's great. They love it. Jimmy Fallon is there. Um, but then The 15 came out and I, I, I thought they had watched it, but they didn't say anything about it. And then I just didn't hear from them for like a week. And I called them like a week later and was like, hey, did you see it? And they were like, yep, we saw it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> Which, again, I totally get. Like, I'm I'm not really their cup of tea yeah. anymore. Like, it's it stinks because I know they think it's cool what I'm doing, and I'm sure they are proud, but they also uh, have their own morals and beliefs, and, and there are 
they don't they don't want to watch anyone tell sex jokes, <laughs> let alone their daughter. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. Uh, if I, it's I heard not you say they uh, they felt as well, you were pandering or by cursing you were. I was to trying cool. to be part of the club. Mm-hmm. That was kind of the thing. Yeah, they made a comment like that of like, it just seems like, because they had just seen me do this squeaky clean set. So yeah. in their mind, and they hadn't seen me do stand up live for years. Yeah. They had, the last time they'd seen me, I had been, I was opening for Brian Regan, you know, when I was like 21. <laughs> so they hadn't seen me in a few years. And I had kind of told them, like, okay, just so you know, like I curse now and I'm mm-hmm. not totally clean anymore. And the comedy lineup set isn't even really that bad. I mean, I swear maybe twice, uh, but I do have some some. You have a joke about condoms. I have a condom joke. Yeah, that didn't love it. Didn't love it. Um, And uh, I get it. I mean, this special, this special, I was like, you guys do not need to watch it. (laughs) I don't know if they're going to, but I straight up just said like. You're not gonna like it. It's okay. It doesn't hurt my feelings. Um, you know, I if it weren't me, I wouldn't go. You'd really love this gal. You know, like mm-hmm. it's fine. I I told them I'm doing the Tonight Show tomorrow, so you guys can watch that. Like that was kind of the thing. But it's funny because like my grandparents watched yeah. the 15 and they loved it. And I don't know if there's enough separation. Yeah. Uh, they're yeah. like you're far enough away that we uh, it doesn't have implicate some them in the same way. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't implicate them in the same way. Um, but I think I'm a pretty I think I'm a pretty responsible person. Yeah, comparatively. Yeah, I would like <laughs> that's comedians. the thing. You're like, I said I use condoms. Like, that's pretty good. I and I I do all these jokes uh, in this one about being abstinent for a long time and like not sleeping with a lot of people and just like, I'm like, oh, I'm right there though. Like, yeah. there's still part of you that wants your parents to go, you're pretty good. Like, you, you got close, <laughs> which is so silly. Since I know uh, you're a fan of the artist's way, Julia Cameron's seminal book from the early 90s, which gave people tips and techniques to help gain confidence in pursuing creative endeavors. I I was asked to (laughs) summarize the book. (laughs) And now my producer is mad that I then said this. It's just so funny to read a direct quote. Anyway, so I was thinking about a quote about um, not calling the inability to start laziness, but calling it fear. And Mm -hmm. so Cameron writes, most frequently, it's a fear of abandonment. This fear has roots in childhood reality. Most blocked artists try to become artists against either their parents' good wishes or their parents' good judgment. For a youngster, that is quite a conflict. To go squarely against your parents' values means you better know what you're doing. You better not just be an artist. You better be a great artist if you're going to hurt your parents so much. So... um, I just start dry heaving. (laughs) (gasps) So, um, what do you think about the quote, by the time you're working on the material that is this special, where have you settled on the idea of your relationship to your stand-up as it relates to the church and your family? I mean, I love that Julia Cameron quote. I think it's so perfect. I remember reading that the if you're going to disappoint your parents so much, you'd better be a great artist. I feel that way every day. Uh, I was talking to someone about it last night where I was like, it's crazy that I still it still makes me sad (laughs) that they probably won't like it Mm -hmm. and that they'll be disappointed because, of course, I never want to hurt them or upset them in any way. Um, But you also can't really be anything other than what you are. And I think I tried to be that for a long time I think I tried to be a clean Christian comedian for a few years longer than maybe I wanted to and at a certain point I just thought there's so many things I want to talk about and want to make jokes about that I can't in this space and also when I started doing stand-up I mean I hadn't even been to prom let alone (laughs) like at sec like I hadn't done anything. I think I'd kissed one person when I was 16. Maybe that's not true. Like I had, I had barely dated at all. So of course it was easier to be clean. And then once you start having 
more relationships and dating experience and uh, sex and whatnot. And it, of course, you want to talk about all those things. And there's a reason people tell jokes about relationships and dating because it's the most relatable yeah. thing to talk about. It's the thing we all have in common. Um, you can't tell jokes about being abstinent when you are a person who's dating and is not abstinent. Yeah. By the way, there were churches that would not let me tell jokes about being abstinent. I'm like, I'm promoting the thing you like, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't want you to even refer to anything like that. Like if you're married and you have a family and stuff, you can sometimes get away with a little innuendo in the mm-hmm. church because everyone's like, he's a good guy. He's got a wife and four kids and whatever. But as like a single female who was 19 nobody's gonna be on board with that they're gonna go you're leading people astray uh i told a joke once where i said i think i said stripper in it and it wasn't like a dirty joke and i remember somebody in the church was like every time you say that you are making men think of strippers and this is your fault and you're you're compromising their uh salvation and i was like this is come on guys i sure they're all thinking about it anyway uh but yeah in in doing this special I definitely knew that it was going to be a little bit of a turning point because everybody has Netflix. And there are things that I've said on stage that friends of mine have told me like, that doesn't really sound like your voice. That's a little dirtier than I think your voice is. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit in with the rest of your material. And those notes are always really helpful because I I do think you can misrepresent yourself on stage sometimes. Um, But I felt like the hour that finally came together for Quarter Life Crisis was totally representative of me and where I'm at. And I wouldn't say that I'm religious anymore. Um, I, you know, I'm 26, so who knows who I'm going to be in four years, to be honest with you. But uh, I, I wasn't putting it out like, ooh, I'll never work a church again. Yeah, yeah. Like I, that ship sailed a while ago. But it, a huge source of stress for me was uh, upsetting my parents or upsetting my extended family um, because you know, they're all, they're all conservative and, and like, and they're pretty cool. I'm going to be honest. Like, they're really cool. They're not like stuffy. I think they get it. Uh, it was mostly just my parents, to be honest. I mean, even my extended family that's more conservative is pretty open-minded, I think. Uh, so let's talk about the joke, uh, that brought you here today. Um, so in general, how do you write? What does writing material look like for you? Well, when you first start out, it's, kind of just whenever jokes come to you because you can write about anything and you don't have any material yet. And now that it's my full-time job over the years, it has really become like I get up in the morning and make tea and sit down at a desk. Like I have an office at home or I go to a coffee shop if I'm on the road. I have trouble writing in hotel rooms Mm -hmm. for some reason by like some light activity around me, some people watching. Um, you know, we are always making notes on our phones, comedians with ideas of, of topics or things to talk about or, you know, little trigger words of like things that happened from childhood or like stories Mm. from, you know, college or whatever, um, until something kind of sparks something else. And then that branches out into hopefully another page of free writing. And then you try it on stage and about 30% of it best case scenario makes it into some sort of And then you're, are you tape recording the sets and then you go back and you rewrite from there? Mm-hmm. Um, so you allude to this in the joke, but you you lost your virginity while being a comedian, right? Uh-huh. Like, yep. And so what is the process of then realizing and accepting that 
oh, there's material in this. Well, I mean, the whole the whole joke is that I I try. I had waited for a long time mm-hmm. because I was a you know good Christian gal, and when I finally got to a place where I was like, I'm ready to have sex and I'm going to do it, and I choose you. And the guy was like too nervous to take it. Very nice guy. Very yeah. happy I dated him. Lovely, lovely man. Uh, but he he just like. I think he was just too nervous because it was such a big deal um, and just like couldn't just couldn't go through with it and kept kind of putting it off. And I was like, this is hilarious that you have waited so long. You're like the last one of all your friends. And not only are you failing at being uh, a clean virginal Christian you can't even seal the deal and it's that you know that societal whatever gender thing of it's uh, so unfair and whatever but it's the thing they tell you is like oh you're a girl you can sleep with whoever and it's like no you can't as it turns out Uh, sometimes and I've talked to women after shows who are like the same thing happened to me I tried and he said no or he wasn't into it and that's made me feel so much better I mean so many jokes that I've written and done on the road really I thought were just funny and it turns out it was like a little therapeutic for me because other people come up and make you feel way less weird you're (laughs) like I'm the only person that this has ever happened to that couldn't get someone to take my virginity and there's so many people who were like oh same thing it's so embarrassing did you try to write material about it immediately or is it a thing that took a few years like what brought it back up to be like now it's a thing that I'm going to talk about on stage I think I started talking about it after he and I broke up but while we were dating I wasn't I still thought I would I was like, I'm going to get it uh, or you're going to get it. I'm going to get you're going to take it. Uh, and and uh, once we broke up, I was kind of like, that is hilarious yeah. that 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 happened the way it did. Um, you alluded to it where people said they related to. But what's what's interesting about watching you is partly because you where most comedians in their early 20s are starting comedy. You are at this point already a somewhat experienced comedian. So mm-hmm. you get, you're getting to watch a person talking about being in their 20s while being in their 20s, opposed mm-hmm. to a comedian in their 30s being like, oh, one, I was in my 20s, blah, blah, blah. Can you see the difference from what you're doing to a comedian who's doing it from the perspective of someone who's like past that point in their life? Yeah, absolutely. Because I think the most common perspective is people talking about seeing people in their 20s and going like hey f- fuck you man like this your metabolism's really fast and you you know aren't paying all your bills yet and you're you know you don't know that life's gonna hit you in the face yet like all the, the all those perspectives I've heard mm-hmm. and as someone in their 20s I felt like no 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 I know that I suck and I yeah. know what's coming and I know that I'm not a fully formed human yet. And so everything you guys are saying, I agree with, and I still have to be here. Do you know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. how everybody looks back on their twenties, like, Oh, I was so dumb. I would not go back for anything. I didn't know what was happening. I'm like, imagine knowing all of that, but you're in it. Yeah, It's like realizing you're dreaming during a nightmare yeah, and yeah. not being able to wake yourself up, yeah. which is the only type of lucid dreaming I've done, by the way. It's terrifying because I'm working so hard on myself and in so much therapy and I still just do not feel like I've got it down. I don't feel like my decisions are the right ones a lot of the time. I don't feel like 
I know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't even feel like I know what I want Mm -hmm. year to year. And as soon as I feel like I do know, life hits me in the face. (laughs) So it it really does feel like a waiting game where you're kind of like, okay, I mean, everyone keeps telling me 30s are better. I've had so many people tell me when they turned 30, it was like... A light bulb turned on and they were just them completely. And Or I turned 40 and everything was great. And nobody ever says, when I turned 25, things really came together for me. <laughs> so the, the section of the special comes um, after a section where you talk about dating bad dudes and, uh, and about how you specifically have a, a high sex drive and you sort of go into mm-hmm. it. Um, but you set up this this section broadly as like, I know that makes me sound cooler than I am. I'm not that cool. Uh, how did you sort of land on that framing? It wasn't even only that I wasn't fun. It was like I didn't even have any interest mm-hmm. in partying. I was too scared to drink or do drugs or anything. Like, I mean, my mom died when I was really young and she was pretty young. And I, not from drugs or anything, but... Uh, I think when that happens, you kind of go, all right, I'm not going to push it because I know mm-hmm. bad things can happen when you're young, too. So I think I, I missed that bubble of invincibility that a lot of young people have, particularly in college, when yeah. people look back and they go, oh, man, I took so many risks. I was so dumb. I almost died three times. I don't have any of those stories because I'm waking up every day like, is today the day? Yeah. Is today the day? Uh, but yeah, I just I didn't. That was not my college experience. I was already doing stand-up. Stand-up's the most irresponsible thing I've ever done, yeah. to be honest. Like, it's it's but even, crazy. But you did it in the most truly responsible way of, like, immediately as a job for Christians. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I, <laughs> I, I was able to go full-time, I think, when I was 20. Like, it was fairly early. And it was more so doing colleges yeah. than churches. That allowed me to do that, and you're right. I I was I was pretty responsible even in how I went about doing yeah. stand up. I remember thinking, I what what can I write about that other people aren't talking about? And I thought, what do I see everyone talking about? in their 20s or like when they make a show about being in your 20s like for example like I loved girls I thought girls was amazing did I relate to a lot of it no those were not my experiences I've never bathed with a friend of mine like I I've never danced in you know with my roommate like I even those things and those are like the tamest things like I didn't have any STDs like I had never lost my job, like which are all very relatable things. But for me personally, I was like, I've never gone to a rave in Brooklyn. Like, uh, this is just not what I have. So I was like, okay, I know there's more to mine there as far as just like representing the people who are going, I I don't want to get fucked up and Mm -hmm. go crazy. And I, I don't feel this peer pressure to experience certain things. I'm just trying to keep it together. And I think a lot of people in their 20s right now are trying to do everything. I think a lot of people are trying to have that partying phase because you feel like you're supposed to or you actually just really want to. And then there is also the side of you that's like, I got to be in the office tomorrow morning because if I don't kill it as this high powered career person's assistant, I'll never be a high powered career person. (laughs) So I think it's never, there's never been a more uh, stressful time to be in your 20s <laughs> and have, have so much expected of you at once. 
So uh, you start this section with a joke. I grew up very religious, so I was encouraged to abstain from drugs and alcohol and sex and enjoyment, Mm -hmm. which you used in your your 2017 Conan to set up a different abstinence joke. Uh Some of the jokes you told in 2017 were only told there, like the one about how it was hard because if someone else missed their period, they were pregnant. But if you did, you were carrying the Messiah. Uh So that joke stayed there. Were others made into your comedy lineup set? Like uh-huh. the joke about how you're a wild animal, I believe, is in your mm-hmm. comedy lineup set. Um, can you walk me through how your sets evolve, how you thought about including which jokes where, how you decided when to drop what part of that sort of, I imagine, just font of abstinence-related material? <laughs> there is a lot in the special. You know, I I probably could have put that joke in the special, Um I think I decided not to because that was a pretty old joke. I mean, I wrote that joke when I was a teenager. I wrote that when I was doing church. I think I wrote it when I was like 17. So when I did it on Conan, I think even that was bringing it back after a while um, where I just gone, oh, this was a good joke. Why did I stop doing this? And so when it, when it, got to be on Conan, that sort of felt like, great, now that lives mm-hmm. somewhere. And especially with social media, now you can cut up clips and put them on your Instagram and Twitter and whatnot. Um, but then other jokes were newer, and I still liked telling them, and they fit in with chunks in the special and and even newer jokes that I was doing. And then there's a lot of it that didn't make it in yeah. because – you know, whatever reason that they would have been in. Um, but I broke up with that guy or, mm. you know, just didn't feel like it was fitting anymore with what I had. Um, because if you're, if you're going to do jokes about your ex-boyfriends, I mean, you got to limit the amount cause it'll get confusing yeah. at a certain point. If it's you're like, going, wait, which ex-boyfriend? Yeah, you're going, my, so my ex, this is a different one. This is another one. Um, <laughs> like it, it gets to be too much. So, um, so I want to go, uh, step by step. Uh, through through the joke and talk about how it evolved, how do you decide to write it, what do you like about that part. So um, sort of one of the first jokes is they used to tell us the safest sex is no sex, which is a lot like saying the safest travel is books. Um, did this evolve? Why books instead of the safest travel is staying home or magazines? You know, like why yeah. that phrase? I just thought it was funny. I think <laughs> sure. it's hilarious. Like, cause it, you, there are all those quotes in like every bookstore that's like, a book can take you anywhere. You can go around the world in 80 days. And here's the book. I, I just thought that was, that was f- funny and, and quick and, you know, so much shorter than saying, like, that's like saying the safest travel is home. It just yeah. doesn't have the same hard K hard sound. K sound <laughs> that's just we find hilarious. Uh, yeah, I just I just thought it was funny. And I also just read a bunch as a kid. Mm-hmm. And so I I think when I was a kid, it really did make me feel like transported. So it's me making fun of that saying, but also buying into it a little bit, I guess. So so the next section, which is is about how you didn't have sex in high school, but you did other stuff, and that was the best part. I've heard you talk about that sort of anecdotally mm-hmm. on podcasts. How did that evolve as to something that would then be in your act and then be joke-appropriate opposed to, like, whatever the longer version of just talking about it is? So I wrote that joke because I was in relationships – and when I hadn't had sex yet, I was still sexually active uh, by many people's standards, including the church, was not winning many points with God uh, with the loopholes. And uh, I remember talking to friends of mine 
who were having a lot of sex and finding out that they were not like finishing, that Mm -hmm. they were not getting theirs. And I was genuinely like, I cannot believe that that is the case. Like, how is that possible that I'm like, that's so funny that every time I hook up with somebody, I'm like, no, this needs to be amazing for me because I, I might be giving up heaven for you. Mm -hmm. Like it was such a different, (laughs) a different, uh, approach to it and all I I really do think it was because I grew up religious I think I didn't I didn't want to do anything sexually unless it was going to be a great time like it had to be worth had to be worth disappointing my parents that much (laughs) so um the Capri Sun joke oh my gosh the Capri Sun joke honestly the dude I lost my virginity to uh gave me that tag and I I am so angry every time I tell it I'm like damn it that is good yeah I was we were I was running jokes but I was running that joke by him and he he riffed that and it was very funny and it made it in was he a comedian or yeah, was he a, re- he's a comedian mm-hmm. <laughs> there are other jokes about him in the special too <laughs> um so the joke uh what happened was I was waiting till marriage or until Jesus came back because it's I'm like my dad will like him right so <laughs> This is a joke in the setup. Did you start with you were just writing a sentence and you had the spark of it? Or did you start with the idea that my dad would approve if I was doing That I riffed on stage, just yeah. on the road. Because that's what happened. You run these bits over and yeah. over so many times that at a certain point, your brain just starts looking for new things to keep it engaged so you don't go on autopilot probably. And I just remember one night I, I just riffed that instead of saying... So I had waited, 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 and then finally, and one night I just said, so I had waited, 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 because uh, I was waiting until marriage or until Jesus came back, like, my dad would like him, right? Like, And it yeah. worked, so I was like, well, we're keeping that. That's very funny to me. So the joke moves to a part about rejection that's largely about how differently boys and girls are raised and it's sort of like too many act-outs. Um, how did you land on getting this point across that way, where you show the two different uh, ways in which we talk to little kids? Uh, the act-outs? Yeah. I think that was probably something that came together on the road too, where you start with this idea and it's much, everything I have starts much shorter. And then once you run it enough times where you're like, okay, this is a guaranteed laugh. You feel confident enough to start tagging it up like crazy. And you just tag it and tag it and tag it until it starts to peter out and you go, okay, I guess that's all the tags that that can handle (laughs) or that that's going to allow. Um, So it'd be like, you had a joke. It's like, oh, girls are raised and they say this and boys are like this. And then- you were like, oh, you get some laugh of that. Then so one time you'll say more things about the girls when you see it and how far mm-hmm. it goes. And same thing with the boy. Yeah. I mean, the joke was just that growing up, everyone told me it was going to be easy and that women don't expect anyone to say no to them. And it's because of how society raises mm-hmm. us. It's what everyone's telling you. And that is all anybody told me was that I you have to hold on to your virginity. You have to hold on to it. It was like, everyone's always trying to take it from you. And then the minute I tried to give it to someone, they were like, I'm good, actually. I'm fine. Like, yeah. <laughs> which was so insane to me. And I felt lied to. Yeah. <laughs> and whereas, you know, guys are kind of like prepped to hear no. Like they're kind of like, especially now it's like, Hey, like if someone's uncomfortable, you need to stop Mm -hmm. because in a lot of cases you might be stronger than them or whatever (laughs) their boss and you can't do that. Um, so I, I thought, I thought that that was just funny and also kind of sad. So the, the line, 
you're going to need to get consent, which is a noise she makes, not a feeling you feel. That was a riff, too, on the wow. road. Yeah, I, yeah. I truly was like, well, you didn't riff that. Oh, I did on the road, yeah, because it was, if there's an act out, I usually riffed a good portion of it, but I started with the act out. Um, and if you're, if you get, once you get that rolling laugh and you feel like you can just keep going, that's uh, that's the stuff I go back to listen to, especially because mm-hmm. that's the stuff I won't remember a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, I just I just thought that was funny because you hear you hear so many there are so many you know articles and stories and stuff about s- dates or sexual encounters where y- you really go like okay that wasn't cool but I also really think that dude just didn't realize yeah. like really didn't know like thought everything was cool and I think the fact that now we're all as a as a culture like moving into a place of like no you need to just ask and be communicative and figure it out is so good so it prevents that miscommunication um in the comedy lineup set you have a joke about sort of women's fears of being sexually assaulted Mm -hmm. and where you tell the men in the audience who are tightening up the joke isn't for them Mm -hmm. you know in general this is probably the most pointed part of the joke though a lot of this joke sort of the subtext is the benefit of actually communicating Mm -hmm. with your sexual partner how do you think about this stuff in terms of um, being more direct and being more pointed and being like, listen, this I'm telling you something. I want the audience to leave here with some amount of information about like how they should behave. I don't ever write anything going, people need to hear this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I, I never go into it that way. I just kind of write about what I think is funny and interesting. And if those moments pop up and they feel appropriate, then I'll lean into them. Because I think as a comedian, you're just always trying to address what's happening in the room. And so every time I did that joke, I absolutely felt like guys were kind of like, I don't think about that or I don't get it. And it did. It starts off with like ladies, like, you know, so you do feel like you almost have to say something to guys in the room to bring them back in Mm -hmm. so they don't sort of check out. Um, And again, not their fault. I mean, you guys don't worry about getting murdered that much. And I love that for you. That's amazing. Um, (laughs) Which is, I do, I do another bit about it uh, in my new hour about how I think it's, it's so funny that like my boyfriend is more afraid of me being mad at him than dead. (laughs) Like he will check in with me if he thinks I'm angry, but he he won't check in if he just doesn't hear from me for four hours. He's just like, well, I'm just probably pooping or something. <laughs> like, like I know a lot of people who have fights about that in their heterosexual relationship, um, where they're like, hey, he's never worried about me, and I'm always worried about him or whatever. And I've had so many talks with with guys I've dated about that, um, and. Again, just one of those things where it makes me feel way less alone to yeah. have people say that they they know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I'm never I'm never going out of my way to uh, deliver a message. Yeah, yeah. So uh, we move to the sort of uh, what I wrote down as the triad of similes. <laughs> so you have a lot of similes, but this is sort of like simile, 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 um, which is uh, you have the Gap one, then the mm-hmm. Costco one, and then the Las Vegas nightclub flyers. Uh-huh. Do you remember writing that piece? How did you sort of attack that? section the gap joke i added literally like two weeks before i filmed the special the that's the one about um i felt like i was trying to get hired yeah because it it really did feel that way the the Costco. costco line was something people had actually said to me like when i was younger i remember people saying that of like oh it's easy it's just like handy like which was 
what I thought of when I got rejected uh, sexually. I was like, are you kidding me? This is what I've been told. And, uh, and then nightclub, the nightclub fires, the nightclub specific fi- thing that, that I think- wrote. Yeah. That was the first thing I, I wrote. Cause I was trying to think of, I, I tried a few different versions of that. I remember when I wrote it early on where I think the, the initial version of the joke I had tried to say, like, it was more on like your virginity is a gift. And it mm-hmm. was like, I tried to give him my gift and he was just like, is there a gift receipt? <laughs> like it was a different thing. And I thought, I think I might have done shows in Vegas yeah. and I just saw those guys and I'm like, oh, nobody wants to take that from them. And they're trying so hard. And that's the perfect visual. Um, so then the joke about, but you know what they say, women always go for men like their father. So I keep going for guys who don't want to sleep with me. Yeah. Uh, and then you explain to people that that's, that joke is nice and that joke yeah. is about how your dad's good. Um it's an interesting moment. It is, the audience truly does not know where. Yeah. How did that feel to be in that? Well, here's the thing. It's I have done it so many times. It's every night. There's never a night where it just murders and everyone carries me out <laughs> on their shoulders. Like it, there is always some weirdness and it's because all people hear is incest. That's mm-hmm. all they hear. And you're like, that's the opposite of what I'm saying. And I thought the joke was so good and funny. And I'm like, this is an airtight joke. I think the first version of the joke I wrote was like, I. they say women go for men like their fathers, which is why uh, I like guys who would think, who f- feel weird about kissing me, like something like that. Mm. And that is almost uh, too true. Yeah. I, I, I think this joke is good. And I think people laugh at it and think it's funny but they do tense up especially if you're there with your parents sometimes people go to comedy shows mm-hmm. with their parents I could see why you might be uncomfortable with it but I I did just start calling it out because it's sort of a save line but it's also like you think about it for a second yeah, yeah. don't just like knee jerk <laughs> reaction and go oh you want to sleep with your dad no that's the opposite of the joke the joke is my dad is my dad so of course he wouldn't want to and it's funny that I am trying to date men who also just aren't interested in me in that way. I imagine if you took a long, like a very long pause, they would think about it yeah. and be like, oh, but because you, you immediately know they are going to not yes. get it. You're you are essentially calling on their brain, figuring it out. Yeah. Well, and I'm not that patient, too. Yeah. And I my style is just very fast. So I'm not going to wait that long. I'm not one of these people who has the patience to be like, let's just sit in this for a minute until you guys come around. Yeah. Like, I'm like, no, if you don't, if you're not... At my pace, I will steamroll you. <laughs> so you, you finally get to sort of what is the premise of the joke about how you lost your virginity late, um, which you set it up, which in a more classic style joke, you'd be like, I lost my virginity late. And the audience would go like, how late did you lose it? But <laughs> <laughs> can you walk me through how it evolves to financial independence and sort of what are an example of financial independence? Uh which ends with the Ikea painting that I purchased with a coupon. Uh, true. Although I don't know that I had a coupon. Um, I, I think I wrote this pretty quickly after I lost my virginity. Like Maybe like the next day I started running it where I'm like, it's so funny that it took me this long and that I did try before this mm. and it didn't pan out. Yeah, I remember thinking it's so funny that most of my friends lost it when they were not, when they were still on their parents' you know, cell phone plan and everything. Or a lot of them lost it, you know, when we were in high school or when they were in college in like a dorm room or something. Like their parents were heavily financially involved in their lives and they are having sex. And I'm like, that's insane. I mean, I definitely waited until I was out of my parents' house to try to lose my virginity because that felt respectful. And I'm like, I was like, 
I was living in LA, like I was doing pretty well and I couldn't lose my virginity, but I mean, I only live with one roommate and I have a bathroom in my room. So I mean, something's going right, I guess. Yeah. So, um, the last section is, is, is really interesting. It's, it's the same time sort of the most personal and there's a part that's sort of like offering the audience a bit of a take home message. And then it builds to obviously this big, uh, applause break punchline. Can you walk me through the the evolution of that last part? So the closer that you referred to earlier on the comedy lineup that I had used uh, about the the guys weren't not wanting to wear condoms uh, that had been about a guy I dated before and was like one of my favorite jokes to do. And once I did it on Netflix, I was like, well, I can't do this anymore. And after that, I was like, oh man, I'm going to need like a new closer. And this is, we got to think of something. And, uh, I was in a new relationship and we'd been seeing each other for like a few weeks. And I remember it was like getting to that point. I was like at his apartment or something. And I was like, I'm not really there yet. Mm -hmm. And I remember it was such a non-issue and he was just like, okay, yeah, it's fine. And we just like watched a movie or something and he was totally cool about it. And I remember going, oh my gosh, that I think I'm good now. Like <laughs> that, maybe that's what I needed. And I started thinking about all my relationships and going, have I always done that? And is that, is that a safety thing? Is that a, you know, growing up abstinent kind of thing where I need somebody to say it's okay. We don't have to have mm-hmm. sex. So I know they respect me because that's the whole pitch is that if someone has sex with you before marriage they don't respect you and yada 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 uh did you write this joke like right afterwards yeah like that next like that next week you're like what just happened let me write a joke that explains it to myself yeah um do you remember coming up with the charlie and the chocolate factory ending i mean i just loved that movie growing up so i think i think it came to me fairly easily i might have sat down and tried to think of examples sometimes I will do that where I go I know there's something here and I know there's something to compare it to um and I remember when I started doing the joke there wasn't that whole like there wasn't like this twirling the cane act out and uh a very funny comic Matt Broussard like gave me a tag he said you should say like welcome to my chocolate factory and then I changed it to come inside my chocolate factory and the next time he saw it he was like oh my gosh that's so much dirtier And what I pitched you and I was like, Hey, it works. Thank you, man. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it just, it started with, uh, Charlie, it's all for you. And then it just, again, you start mm-hmm. tagging it until it becomes much longer and, and turns into something that you can close on. Do you remember, um, the first time you did it or the first time you did it where you're like, this really, really worked? I know the first couple times I did it, I said on stage, like, I'm so glad that that worked because I love it so much and I wasn't sure if it would work. <laughs> I did do it at a couple colleges and realized they did not watch that movie. Yeah, yeah. Because if you saw like the remake with Johnny Depp, it's not the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I don't think. I and don't you remember. don't care. And you don't care because it's not a good movie. But the Gene Wilder one is such a classic. Mm. And that scene is so kind of like manipulative and fucked up, but also magical. Yeah. And uh, which is kind of what sex is. And I I just like once I came up with the, the comparison, I was like, if this works, it will be my favorite joke to do. We'll be right back with more Taylor Tomlinson. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity 
but giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Calling all female runners. It's time to lace up and join Team Milk. Since the 2022 New York City Marathon, Team Milk has sponsored female marathon runners nationwide, providing support and shining a spotlight on their unique stories, perseverance, and drive to go the distance. Why milk? Dairy milk is an excellent nutritional ad for both marathon training and recovery. Milk contains 13 essential nutrients, including high-quality protein, making it a crucial component of a training diet. Plus, it's one of the best beverages for hydration, even better than water. The same electrolytes that are added to many of your favorite sports drinks are found naturally in milk. And in 2024, Team Milk is taking the next step to empower female runners by launching the only women's marathon in the U.S. designed for and by women. Built to be accessible, empowering, and community building, the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. And we're back with Taylor Tomlinson. So I think anyone who hears this will be struck by just sort of how many freaking jokes there are in it. Like, there's just, like, there are punchlines in the premises. There's punchlines in the setups. Do you have rules of thumb of how often you want a laugh? How do you think about pacing? Oh, as often as I can get one. I need lots of validation every 10 to 15 seconds. Uh, Yeah, usually when I write a new bit, if there are gaps or the setup's too long or if there's too long a stretch without a laugh, I start to get nervous and itchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm, yeah, I'm always trying to have as many punchlines as possible uh, in the same way. Like when you're doing a late night set, you just want to cram in as much as possible. I feel the same way about an hour. Um, so I have some thoughts about this and this might be a pretty sharp transition uh, for the listener. And thus, um, so I want to talk a little bit about how you lost your mother when you were eight. Oh yeah. Um, because I, I lost my mother around the same time. Oh, I was wow. almost about to turn eight. And I would hear you talk in interviews. And I was like, Oh, we had very similar experiences. Really? Yeah. When I see a comedian who is sort of a machine gun like you are, I think I learned this talking to Whitney Cummings. There feels like there's like uh, these complimentary impulses of a, a desire for control of the audience that comes with like, I'm going to make them laugh and I, I know where it's going to be. And as you sort of hint in the special, a difficulty trusting people, a difficulty trusting the audience mm-hmm. that if I'm not making them laugh, that they're going to still like me. Mm. Does that resonate with you? So much. Oh, my gosh. Ouch. 
Well, I don't mean it to hurt your feelings. I hope. <laughs> no, I mean, it, like, ouch, I feel so seen. Oh. That's, I'm just raw out here. Uh, yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think, um, I think the, the new material that I have now, I have, I mean, I have like 15 minutes in the new mm. hour about losing my mom. And it's, I had some of it before I filmed this special and I thought about putting it in. I think some of it was in the submission video that we, mm-hmm. we gave to Netflix and I ended up cutting it because I thought, you know what, I want this special to be sort of representative of like the first five years of my twenties. Like that's what it feels like a snapshot of. That's what it feels like I'm mm-hmm. qualified to talk about. Also, I feel like there's more to losing my mom than I have currently. And I don't want to do like five minutes in this hour about being in your 20s and dating is crazy. It felt a little like out of nowhere. Whereas this new hour thematically is like, these are my experiences in therapy. This is my experience calling off my wedding. This is, you know, why I'm like this because I lost my mom in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways. This is kind of my relationship uh, now. Like it's, it's, uh, it's definitely dealing with all that stuff. I have jokes about how I don't trust people and how it's hard for me to trust people at the beginnings of relationships. And it all feeds into each other. It really does because you, you start off by just having trust issues and then you go to therapy and they go, these are all the reasons you have those. And you go, Oh my gosh. So I'm fixed now. And they go, no, no, no. Now you just know why you suck. And you're like, so what do I do? And they're like, you come back next week with your credit card. I really wanted to talk about it and I wanted to have the maturity to talk Mm -hmm. about it. And I didn't feel like I had it yet. And it's funny, once we got this special in the can, I started working out those jokes on the road. And even now, like they don't, there are audiences that are like, they get bummed or sad. And I've just, you just build in those jokes where yeah. you call people out for it. And, you know, you got to understand, you go, the people who are tensing up probably didn't lose their parents. Like yeah. the people who are tensing up about that stuff in the same way, like when you tell somebody that you lost a parent, I'm sure you've experienced this. If they haven't lost anybody, they get really sad and uncomfortable. Yeah. But if someone else has, in the sort way, in the same way, you have a shorthand with like other comedians. You have like a shorthand with people with dead parents, <laughs> like sure. lost them as kids. Where you're like, oh yeah, I see you. I know what that was. Like, I get it. You know. Do you feel like as you've gotten better at a comedian, you've gotten better at just trusting the audience to listen to you and trusting the audience to deserve that part of yourself? I think I trust myself more. Mm-hmm. I think when I was younger, I was nervous because I felt a need to make everyone comfortable in the audience because I knew I was young. I knew I looked young and I knew that when I got on stage, everybody was kind of like, "Mm, okay, I hope this doesn't go badly. And I could feel it. And so pretty early on, I was like, okay, I need to know how to move confidently, how to speak confidently, how to move the mic stand confidently. Like it, it felt like setting myself up was very important. And I think, also, hopefully enough people watch this special that I there's more of a familiarity with me when people come out to see me mm-hmm. because now people do come out to see me, but there's still a good chunk of the audience who doesn't know who I am and just wants to see comedy that weekend or just watch like one Tonight Show set of mine. And I think once people get to know you, 
you have a little bit more freedom to explore more personal things or take more chances because people are already fans and, and already understand and know your voice so they don't have to get used to it yeah. for the first 10 minutes. Um, so that's sort of what I was waiting for. And I'm, I'm glad I, I waited for it because it, it definitely felt like the right decision. And it, there's just been... I feel like I find new things about it all the time because it's, I'm sure I'm sure you feel the same yeah. way as like when you lose a parent that young, you don't process it at that age fully because you don't know what's happening. Yeah. I always think about people like, oh, comedians are the funniest people. It's like, well, they're they have a proclivity to be funny, but also they needed to keep on doing it. It's mm-hmm. so weird to be a comedian. and so hard to get through the first however many years mm-hmm. that there has to be a reason why laughter matters to them so much. Yeah. Is that the case with you? Absolutely. That's what I tell people when they say, what advice do you have for me who's starting out or doing yeah. comedy? I go, it, truly, and I know other people have said this, like, if you can do something else, go do that other yeah. thing. Like, if you don't need to do this, I've been friends with people where I've basically said, like, I don't think you need to do it. And I'm like, the road's not fun. You're yeah. not going to like the road. Uh, you're going to like doing stand up, but you have to need it so badly that you're willing to put up with everything else you have to put up with until you become successful. And it is going to take as long as it's going to take. I mean, I've gotten very lucky. I know people who had to wait a lot longer for a special like that. Like it's, you just never know how it's going to go down. You just have to keep working really hard every day. And if you don't love the process in an obsessive, unhealthy way, and you don't need the validation from strangers, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, you, you'll probably tap out. Um, have you ever seen or heard Hamilton, the musical Hamilton? Yes, both. Great. So this is a lot easier of a question. Oh my gosh, so good. Is, um, it, is it the overwhelm them with honesty quote? Oh, it's the right like you're running out of time. Love it. <laughs> Love it. From- Do you feel that way? Yes, absolutely. I my mom passed away when she was thirty four. How old? Was I think about thirty nine, forty. I think. Wow. Okay. So do you, uh, growing think, up, think I'm going to die at that yes. age? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yes, it's <laughs> super common apparently, and I I didn't know that, and I don't even think I realized I had that fear until a few years ago, and I I think in addition to I have to be really good if I'm going to disappoint my parents, I also have that in the back of my head, which is okay. I may only have till 34 because in addition, my mom's aunt also died, mm-hmm. same cancer, 34. So there's a pattern, rule of threes. And I I, I do feel like on a certain level, every time I get something, there's this morbid part of my brain that goes, you know the universe is giving you this because you don't have that much time left, which is so dark and so sad, but it it really is. So it's less of a, oh, it's interesting because I think coming from a religious background, you think the universe is giving you this instead of like, I'm I'm creating this because I oh, only have so yeah. much time and I need something. Yeah, but it's both. I mean, yeah, I the reason I didn't party and the reason I work hard are the same thing is I don't have that much time. I don't have time to be irresponsible like you guys do mm-hmm. because I don't have till I'm 70. And even if I do, I may not. Like that's the thing. You 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 don't know that you're going to die at that age, but you're like I have a hunch. And also even days that you're more positive and you're like I'll live later than that. You you know you're going to feel so bad when you live past that age. That's another thing I've heard from people is that they have like this survivor's guilt. This will, I promise, will be the, this is the last question about this stuff. No, I love it. It's great. <laughs> so there's this book, um, uh, the, Den- the Denial of Death by Ernest Becker. 
Have you heard of this book? No, is it good? Yeah, it's really good. Okay, I gotta read it. Um, Are you terrified of death all the time? Yeah, all the time. Okay, me too. So it uh, never ends. Um, yeah, and it like hits you like when you're happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where you're like, mm, okay, anytime now. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I feel uh, so seen. Yeah, so it's, it's, you know, it's broadly about how all human behavior is in the denial of death or man's attempt to create immortality. Yeah. Um, and there's a part I think about a lot with this job where I talk to creative people and artists in which the author talks about Otto Rank, who was a psychologist who was in who was a mentee of Freud and worked with a lot of artists. So um, essentially, this section is about how Rank said the religion is the easiest way to live knowing we die. It's it's simpler. It's sort of like, oh, if you believe in it, then you don't really have to ask any more questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but if not. Otherwise, he writes, uh, only the creative type can affirm and accept himself for himself to some extent, he reasoned, by using his work as a justification for existence. Essentially saying, because artists can create their own meaning, they're sort of the only other option if you're not going to be religious. Mm. Um, As a person who had these two things, who is a creative person who uh, became aware of death at an early age and who was raised religious, does that resonate with you? Do you feel power in having the ability to sort of create your own meaning? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's that idea of leaving work behind. That's a sort of immortality as Mm. well, where you go, okay, I'm going to leave behind these specials or like, that's why creative people love watching Hamilton because you go, man, that was so many years ago and we're still, now we're watching, there's all these books about him. He's in textbooks and there's statues and now there's a, there's a rap musical about him. Like I'm never going to die if I write something this good. Like, cause it just keeps your memory alive and, and you feel like you can keep affecting people even when you're gone and maybe on some level that tricks our brains into thinking we'll still be here. Mm. So uh, I've heard you talk about this idea that has been said by a few people, but probably most popularly in a, a viral clip starring Ira Glass, in which he says, when you start out, your taste is sort mm-hmm. of superior than your ability. You, you know how good you want to be with your art, but you don't know necessarily how to do it yet. So what does the comedian you imagine being look like when you your ability meets your aspiration? Ooh. I don't know. Hopefully that I'll be able to write really hard-hitting, punchy jokes about very personal things. I think that's where I would like to get to. I would like to be able to uh, tell jokes about anything I want to, no matter how personal and specific, and make it feel relatable and accessible to whoever's watching it. I mean, obviously nobody's gonna there's always gonna be somebody who doesn't like what you're doing but for the most part i would like to uh i would like to be able to exploit the the darkest things that have happened to me for in this way for this medium Uh, so that sound means uh, it's time for our final segment, which is the laughing round. It's like a lightning round, but because uh, it's comedy, it's a laughing round. Oh, I know what it is. Oh. <laughs> Big fan. Oh, no. <laughs> Usually I have to surprise people with that term. They're like, what's that graphic? I'm like, here it is. Um, do you have a joke you wish you could steal in so much as it's another dimension where everything's oh. exactly the same, but you have this person's joke. No one is none the wiser. Your life is exactly the same, but you have this joke in your act. I don't know if I have a specific joke in mind that I would steal. I mean, there's so many jokes I like 
think are amazing. Uh, if I could, I mean, if I could just be Maria Bamford in an alternate universe, that would be amazing. Because I am nothing like her, and she's my absolute favorite. I think she's so brilliant. I've people have asked me who my favorite comedian is so many times in the last few weeks, and I can I've imagine you yeah. said her so many times. I'm like starting to feel creepy. Um, what would your young adult book be about? Ooh, probably something uh, like fantasy or supernatural driven. Like if I hadn't found comedy, I would probably be like some embarrassing like Stephanie Myers typewriter where I'm just trying to, you know, write escapist mm-hmm. love stories involving ghosts or something for 13 year olds. Cause I hated being in middle school so much. And like the only thing I liked doing was like reading Harry Potter. So I, I would be trying to write, wizard school books probably so your special is going to come up when people search for taylor swift's documentary yes so what is your appeal to her fans to watch your special you guys i mean i'm just as petty uh (laughs) all of all of my jokes about my ex-boyfriends i mean you should see my set list it looks like a taylor swift album each one is just a different man's name that's my appeal to it. I, I had some someone told me that they're like, people who like Taylor Swift will probably like your special. And I was like, I will take it. Um, last, do you have a, a joke that has never worked? You've tried it over and over again. You think it's really funny. But at this point, audiences have told you you can't do it anymore. But you will be like, you guys were wrong. This was right. Um, there is a joke that I tried a few times that did like very well. You know, when you do a joke that does great on like Twitter, mm-hmm. but you do it on stage and it doesn't work. Uh, I tried a joke that I had, I had done on Twitter and it just audiences did not like it. I tried it maybe two or three times. Uh, where I said, uh, I, I refer to all the ex-boyfriend's I've had as a human centipede because I always hold the next one accountable for the previous one's shit. It's good. It is good, but it's it's not what anyone wants to hear about. Nobody likes human centipede references. It's pretty it's like a gross image, but it's comparing it to something emotional. So I'm like, this is fine, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't think people can get past the human centipede thing. Uh let's end with this. So we've talked about the artist way a few times. What is a dream artist date that you have or would like to have? Taking yourself on. Ooh, take myself on an artist date. Uh, I would like to go to some sort of spa retreat in nature and uh, wake up and be able to eat very healthy food and take some sort of uh, hot spring bath outside and then just sit in nature and write, whether it be jokes or morning pages and uh, wake up you know, really early and and see the sunrise and feel the misty dew on my face and then, you know, have a nap in the afternoon so I can sit outside and watch the stars at night. I think just anywhere that I felt like I was was in nature and and I could hide from Mm -hmm. a lot of people and responsibilities. (laughs) Sounds amazing. That's it for another episode. You can stream Quarter Life Crisis on Netflix. Follow Taylor on social media at Taylor Tomlinson. Good One is produced by myself, Jelani Carter, and Art Chung. Editorial assistance from Amanda Gordon and Emily Sen. Gautam Shrikashin did our theme song. Write a review and write the show on Apple Podcasts. Five stars, please. Email any comments, questions, or laughing round suggestions to goodonepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at goodonepodcast. I'm Jesse David Fox, and you can follow me at Jesse David Fox. 
Good One is a production of Vulture and the Vox Media Podcast Network. We'll be back next week with Mark Marin. Have a good one.